Tomorrow is National Senior Citizens Day. If you're a senior, we have lots of good advice for you coming up next. If you're not a senior, you have loved ones who you want to protect and might need some of this information that we are going to give you. And if we're all lucky, we're going to be senior citizens one day. So joining me in the studio is a Karen County uh, show uh, repeat, uh, one of the city's most accomplished elder law attorneys, Catherine Casey. She's a partner at the Chicago firm of Dutton, Casey, and Mesoloris. Katie is one of the few certified elder law attorneys in Illinois. She focuses her practice on long-term care, estate planning, special needs planning, Medicaid and Medicare issues. She's won many awards. She writes and she speaks frequently and is an expert on these issues. Katie, welcome back to WGN. Thanks so much for having me back, Karen. It's nice having you in the studio, too. Uh, Since COVID, you know, we kind of just have not had people in the studio, and it's always nice to see faces without masks. It's great to be here. (laughs) Um, You know, I've been following this news blog, uh, Injustice Watch, is doing a series on the exploitation of seniors, and it's astounding. Just a few days ago, the Sun-Times reported a financial exploitation is going on. Uh, fin- even financial professionals are preying on older people, and the statistic losses from these investment scams against older Americans have increased tenfold, and in 2022, the losses were over a billion dollars. I'm sure you see this, Katie, all the time. Um, what what do you do for clients to help prevent this kind of horrible loss? You know, those those articles really were shocking, Karen, yes. even for me to read. And I've been doing this for over 20 years, trying to prevent these things from happening. So it was really disheartening to see how bad it's gotten in the last few years. We're definitely not improving the statistics. What I can do for my clients is really limited to personal circumstances. There are things they can do on an individual level, and there are things we're going to have to do on a community level to address these problems. On an individual level, the biggest thing my clients can do to help themselves is to start talking about money. Most families don't talk about money. It's not the kind of thing we talk about at the dining room table, right? right? We don't sit down with mom and dad and say, hey, mom and dad, how's your money? How's your bill paying going? What are you investing in? We just don't have these conversations. We need to normalize having financial conversations with our loved ones so that it is more open, more transparent, and more normal to talk about money. Many of these seniors who are being exploited, they don't have anyone to talk to about these financial decisions they're making, and they need that support system. They need somebody to bounce off ideas. They need somebody to confide in to do sort of a checks and balances. So the second thing my clients can really do for themselves, and this is all on a completely non-legal level, right? This is just personal financial management, is build a support system. As we age... We need to build a support system around us to help us through the aging process. Doing that kind of requires that we confront that we're not going to be 100% capacity-wise for our entire lives. Which is another thing we don't like to address and face. We don't like to face our mortality, and we don't like to face the idea that someday we're just not going to be as sharp as we were today. 
Honestly, this is probably the hardest part. It's it's acknowledging that we're not going to be mentally 100% to the end of our lives and accepting that we are going to need support and friendship from other people. But in doing that, in, in bringing in a group of people, either your own blood and kin or your family of choice, if and if no family of choice, then your community members creating a community, I call it the sort of financial book club, you know, your group of supporters who you can talk to as you age and and discuss these things. If we have someone to talk about this financial investment or this person who's come to ask us for money or this person who's now suddenly our friend and who wants us to share our financial information with them, there are going to be some checks and balances to help prevent us from getting into relationships that can lead to this kind of horrible financial exploitation. And I think what you see and, you know, all you need to do is, you know, listen to the podcasts about these con men and con women. Uh, it's kind of equal opportunity uh, scamorama. You know, I, I think that what you see, these people are so charismatic. These people have qualifications. These people put on qualifications that look good, but they may not have them. And they know how to divide people. They know how to pull people away from their families, get people to believe in them. There's religion involved in some of these things. And so these people just then focus and say, nobody has my interest in mind, but this person in front of me. So given that kind of dynamic, what do you do as a family member who you see your grandmother or your mom following some investor and you know this is not a good deal. You what do re- you do? You really nailed it. These these people are professionals. And, and the, the hardest part, the most insidious part of financial exploitation is that they gain the trust and confidence of your loved one. So often my clients are watching this happen to their parent or their loved one. They see that their uncle is in a bad relationship with someone, someone who's gained their trust and confidence, and they're trying to combat that level of trust and confidence with someone with whom they don't have. That's a very, very challenging thing to do and not something that a person can do on their own. Once someone is in the grasp of the bad guy, it's very, very difficult to get them to switch gears and admit that they have become loyal to someone who is not in for their best interest. It's embarrassing, probably. It's shameful. And they. It, it's also an acknowledgement, I would think, that they're failing. They they that to say I was wrong about riding this pony would probably make them think, okay, I don't want everyone to think then they're going to take away all my rights and I'm not going to be able to do anything on my own. You're precisely right. That is the number one reason why our loved ones will not will not confide in us that this is happening to them yeah. and will not admit to it even after the fact. This is a really big challenge, not just for families, but also for law enforcement and APS agencies. They're embarrassed. Just like you said, they're embarrassed that this has happened. They don't want to admit that they made a mistake and they are terrified of losing their right to make their own decisions. We're here talking to Catherine Casey. Uh, she's an elder law attorney. She's certified in it. She's an excellent attorney. Uh, I really, really trust her implicitly, and I know that I have referred WGN listeners to her. You can always call her at what number? 312-899-0950. And you can always contact me, WGN, at AskKarenConti.com if you want Katie's information. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about these things, and we're going to talk a little bit about this Michael 
oh, I'm not saying I'm sure I say his name right, or uh, who is the guy from um, the blind side who now says that he's been in a conservatorship that he wasn't aware of for a number of years. If you have questions here, please give us a call. I'm sure Katie would be happy to try to answer any question you have about these kinds of issues, senior issues, estate planning, conservatorship, 312-981-7200. Welcome back. We're talking to Catherine Casey. She's an elder law attorney with Dutton Casey and Mesoloris, and we're answering your legal questions. If you have a question about Medicaid, Medicare issues, long-term care, estate planning, special needs planning, nursing care issues, give us a call here at 312-981-7200, and we can try to answer your question. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Um, One last wrap-up question. We were talking about the fact that financial uh, fraud on elders has increased on a tenfold basis. I mean, it's just astounding that they're being targeted. Um, What Do you find that the state's attorney will look into these cases, or do you find that what do you have to do in order to get some kind of criminal uh, prosecution done when people are scamming elders? Honestly, Karen, I think it's just too hard to get any sort of conviction against these bad guys. So we, we have a, we have a variety of bad guys here. We've got professional criminals who are targeting seniors. They've, they've got professional rings, um, often caregiving rings where they're exploiting seniors out of money. And then we've got sort of less professional financial exploiters who might be family members, they might be friends, they might just be the people next door. They they are often, unfortunately, lawyers, financial advisors, people selling um, financial products, and, and, you know, and other people who are typically considered fiduciaries under the law. They're, there, there are a lot of people at play here, and the hard thing about getting a conviction is the lack of coordination between agencies and between the legal statutes. So I sort of like to compare the situation to how we fought organized crime before RICO. It was really challenging to deal with organized crime before RICO because agencies were not coordinated. Federal law enforcement agencies were not coordinated with local law enforcement agencies. They were not coordinated with international law enforcement agencies. And the criminal laws were all local and federal, and they're just a huge mess of statutes that were very very difficult to coordinate. We have the same thing here in Illinois with local agencies like the APS, Adult Protective Service Agencies. We've got the Cook County Public Guardian. We've got the state's attorney. We've got police offices. We've got municipal, you know, township police offices, the state police, all of these layers of local law enforcement. And on top of that, we've got federal law enforcement, FINRA, SEC, FBI, and whatnot. There's no coordination between these agencies to deal with, frankly, what comes down to very complex crimes. These financial exploitation cases are not easy to understand. They're not easy to recognize, and they're very, very difficult to prosecute. So there really needs to be a community effort to coordinate these agencies, coordinate the statutes, and come up with a systematic way to confront the crime the same way that RICO helped law enforcement combat organized crime. Yeah, I mean, that's now that you put it that way, it is complex. And, you know, especially, I guess, when I look at Chicago, when you have state's attorneys dealing with triple murders, you know, you know, they they are not necessarily prioritizing when grandma loses $100,000, which to her is everything she has. And now she's destitute, but it's not they're not geared toward investigating those kinds of paper crimes. And and I do think probably they're hard to prove because 
there's going to be a defenses, you know, you you asked for it. You agreed to it. You agreed to this high risk venture. You you know, and 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 they're harder to prove than than a gunshot with a witness. Oh, that's such a good point, Karen. The fact is, is that the witnesses in these cases, the victims, they don't want to talk. Some of them can't talk. So the ones who don't want to talk, like you mentioned, are embarrassed. They don't want to admit that it was anything other than a gift or you know simply a bad investment decision. And then there are the victims who actually can't talk because they are now in the throes of dementia or some other cognitive dysfunction where they can't reliably testify. So it does. It makes it particularly difficult for law enforcement to deal with the prosecution of those crimes. I'm going to talk. Let's talk. I I want to go back to state planning and some of the things that you have seen, the mistakes that have been made and that we're going to try to, you know, have people understand what not to do. Uh, And sometimes just hearing a bad story about something makes you think, okay, now's the time to get this estate plan. Now's the time to do the right thing. But let's talk about uh, something that was in the news. Um, This is Michael Orr, who is the former uh, NFL tackle whose story inspired the blind side with Sandra Bullock. Um, the there were two uh, married couple who are now basically our or says that he did not know that there had been a conservatorship for a long period of time like a 20-year period of time he thought he was adopted by them he now knows there's a conservatorship and he is concerned that he has been exploited out of his money for whatever rights that he has to his book and to his movie can you explain the difference between an adoption and a conservatorship. Yes, another really shocking headline lately. A a conservatorship is a guardianship proceeding in Illinois. Um, You might have heard of the Britney Spears conservatorship. Essentially, it is a legal proceeding where the court appoints a guardian or conservator for a person who has what is legally defined as a mental or intellectual or developmental disability. You cannot, at least legally, appoint a guardian or conservator for somebody who is not disabled. The person has to have some kind of cognitive, intellectual, or developmental disability under the law. So how Michael Ower had a guardian appointed for him is really an open question, given that apparently the underlying pleadings indicated absolutely no disability whatsoever. The whole purpose of the proceeding is to protect someone who can't protect themselves and to take over their personal and financial decision making, meaning a guardian of the person makes personal and healthcare decisions, a guardian of the estate makes all financial decisions. So another big question here is, did he just have a guardian of the person or did he also have a guardian of the estate? How much of his life was actually being managed all these years? And you would think he would know. Now, an adoption is is just... It, it terminates at, in, at, at 18, correct? Cor- correct. So adoption is something that you can take over a person. You can, ha- you can have a legal adoption of a minor under the age of 18, at which point when the, that adopted child turns 18, they're no longer your minor child, but they do remain your legal child for purposes of inheritance. Sure. So there are some states, and apparently Tennessee is one of them, which allows people to take guardianship of an adult. So conceivably, he could have been adopted by this family, even though he was over the age of 18. Adoption is completely unlike conservatorship in this regard. When you adopt someone, you are not taking over their personal or financial decisions after the age of 18. 
You are only taking them over while that person is a minor child before they turn 18. Conservatorship, however, essentially requires the guardian make all personal and financial decisions for the person after the age of 18. In addition, guardianship or conservatorship conveys no inheritance rights. So Michael Ower would have no inheritance rights here as as a person under conservatorship. Had he been legally adopted, even as an adult, he would become an heir. He would be, he would have a legal family relationship in this family that would give him inheritance rights and other rights that flow to people who are related by a legal family relationship. Very interesting. I predict that this there's some facts missing here. I don't I don't buy into the idea that his money has been unavailable to him and, and that there's been no court intervention at all that we've heard about in 20 years, which is something that's very normal. But anyway, thank you for explaining that. We're talking to Catherine Casey. She's an elder law attorney. We're taking calls here for the next half an hour on any topic you want. But if you can keep it to this elder law stuff with Medicare, Medicaid, estate planning, guardianship, 312-981-7200. This is WGN. Welcome back. We're here with Catherine Casey. And she's an elder law attorney. And uh, Catherine, can you give out your phone number again for people who um, might want the services of an elder law attorney? Sure, Karen. It's 312-899-0950. Let's talk a little bit about what you do as an elder law attorney. So somebody comes in to your office, what kinds of questions will you ask uh, that client uh, in order to do what you do best? So most people are seeking me as an elder law attorney in order to prepare to age well. They want to enter their retirement. They want to age in a way that is is happy and financially successful and safe and and healthy. And they're looking for ways to maximize their ability to age well. So the questions I start off asking them are not the questions you would typically anticipate a lawyer asking a person. And they're questions like, how is your health? Have you been diagnosed with any chronic illnesses? Is there anything about your physical condition that makes it hard to do your basic activities of daily living? Do we have an illness that we expect to get worse in the future or impact our ability to live independently? I ask questions like, who who do you live with? Who's your family of choice? Who are your closest Um, the most important people who are closest to you, where are they located? Um, How many social contacts do you have? Who are those trusted people? I want to know things like, what does your house look like? A, a, A bizarre question, right? But for me, aging well often comes down to where we are physically living and how we can manage that home, condo, Whatever it is, how are we going to manage that through the aging process? So I'll ask, tell me about your home. How many floors is it? How many bedrooms are there? How hard is it to maintain? What do you have to do? Do you have any plans to move? I want my clients to set themselves up early for success. And, and that makes sense. And and what I really like about that approach is that it's holistic. And it's, you know, as we talked a little bit on break, uh, you know, sometimes lawyers get into a niche where they just do taxes, or they just do estate planning, or, but they don't do nursing home, or they don't do Medicaid, and they don't do so that you may need the services of five different lawyers to give you an answer. And those 
services may cross purposes sometimes. They may not be coordinated, but for you, this is what you do. And so you know about all these areas and you can, you know, you can give people that, that coordinated sort of uh, picture on how to, how to manage. Um, let's, let's go to the phone. I have, uh, looks like Anthony has a question about finances of some type. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to WGN. You're here with uh, Katie and Karen. Hey, how you guys doing? Doing well. Thank you. Uh, and I'm, uh, I just want to say I'm glad that you guys uh, put this type of material on the airwaves. Um, and, and, and it could go for not only seniors, but uh, people that's not, I guess, financially familiar. Like you might be uh, a person that come into like a large amount of money at roughly uh, maybe through, you know, inheritance, et cetera, et cetera. And my, my, my question, um, Oh, Anthony, Anthony, he'll call back. But in the meantime, um, yeah, a lot of the stuff that you're, you're talking about today that we're talking about applies to everybody. And I think, uh, that the idea of financial scamming is not limited to seniors. I think seniors get targeted for the reasons that we have spoken about. Um, so let's talk a little bit about an estate plan. And again, I've said this a million times on this show, you know, almost everyone needs an estate plan of some type. Can you just tell our listeners what can happen when there is not an estate plan, the things that you have seen, the disasters that have occurred, you know, just a little bit about what could happen when you don't have a coherent game plan for your senior your senior years? That's a great question, Karen, because I, I do see that all the time. Having having a good estate plan, and, and, and there are obviously good ones and bad ones, but if you have a good estate plan in place, far enough in advance, you are setting yourself up to be better protected from financial exploitation. It is one one legal mechanism, at any rate, that you can take in advance to try to protect yourself from being exploited. And what it, what an estate plan essentially means is, is putting in place documents that will protect you if you lose the ability to make your own decisions for yourself. Now, again, it, this is something like you mentioned, Karen, people don't want to think about we do not want to think about the day when we might not be able mentally capable of making our own decisions. That's a terrifying thought. But the consequence of not putting an estate plan in place means that if and when we do lose the cognitive ability to make our own decisions, or if we even lose a little bit of our cognitive ability, it's what I call diminished capacity. We might be fully functional in a lot of ways, but we have a diminished capacity, a diminished ability to remember or make decisions. We might lose some executive functioning and start making bad decisions. Without an estate plan in place, we have no one to protect us. We have no named person to help us step in and manage our finances and make sure we're making good decisions. And what happens is, like we've seen in the papers, our our people become isolated. They don't have a support system. They don't have those documents in place in advance. And so they become subject to legal proceedings like from the Cook County Public Guardian's Office, which has to then step in to get a court to appoint a guardian for you to protect you. And often, 
as we've seen in these cases, it's after money has already been taken. And so we're not preventing the financial exploitation. We're coming in after to try to fix it, which is so hard. Which is do. very hard to yeah. do. Very, very hard to do. Um, and I want to talk a little bit when we get back to Anthony, uh, a little bit about choosing the right person to be your power of attorney. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about what that means. And But picking the right person, because an estate plan is wonderful, but if you have somebody who's not a trust trustworthy person, I think that's when you see a lot of things fall apart. Let's go back to Anthony. I think, oh, no, that's not Anthony. That's Janet. Let's go to Janet. Let's see what Janet has to say. Oh, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hi, Karen. Hi. Hi. I have a question about long-term care insurance. Okay. I I have the insurance. I bought it many years ago when it was about $160. It's now gone up to $390 a month. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Is that still a necessary thing? I do live alone. I'm in excellent health. I'm 72. I'm trying to decide if I should keep that policy at that high rate. That's an excellent question. And it is one that is so incredibly hard to answer. Like, like with any sophisticated financial instrument, it's incredibly difficult to understand these types of policies. I have a few suggestions that might help you get to a decision on whether to keep this policy or not. And by the way, it is not mm-hmm. uncommon for these premiums to keep going up and up and up. So you might not right. just be confronting this decision this year. You might be confronting the, the decision again next year and the year after and in another 10 years as these premiums continue to increase. A long-term care insurance policy is, in my opinion, a very sophisticated financial instrument. It comes with a policy contract with all kinds of terms and conditions that are written in ways that make me go cross-eyed. By the way, I do review these contracts for my clients. They're really hard to read and hard to understand. Even for an attorney. Even for an attorney. Yeah. And they really need to be considered in the context of your overall financial situation. So you can get a lawyer to review the legal terms of these policies and tell you what your rights are under them, what you're likely to receive as a benefit from them. But you really need a financial advisor to take a look at the financial benefit versus the cost of that policy relative to your assets and income, your age, and your likelihood to need long-term care in the future. So it requires a much broader analysis of your financials than just looking at that contract. What I recommend you do is put together mm-hmm. your budget of current expenses. So right now you should create a list of every single monthly and annual expense that you encounter, put together a list of all of your income sources, and then put together what I call an inventory, which is a list of all of your assets, everything you own, from from a house to the car to a bank account, whatever it is, put it on a list. And find yourself a good financial advisor who can then analyze your assets, your income, your expenses against that long-term care insurance policy and determine if that policy makes sense or if you would be better off doing what some people do, which is self-insuring. And self-insuring means we don't have a long-term care insurance policy. We start what we call a rainy day fund specifically for the purpose of paying for our long-term care. That that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for the call, Judy. I think you probably uh, asked a question that is going to help a number of people here. Thank you. We're going to take a break here, but we still have time for some legal questions here. 312-981-7200. We're here with Catherine Casey. One time, give out your number again, please. 312-899-0950. We'll be back in a minute. You know, that's such a happy song, but we're talking about September. I don't know. September means the end of summer, but we'll move ahead. We're here with Catherine Casey. She's an elder law attorney. Let's talk a little bit about powers of attorney. Can you just tell us briefly what a power of attorney is, the power of the two different types of powers of attorney, and then we'll talk a little bit about how do you choose someone to be your trustee or executor or your power of attorney? So Karen, powers of attorney are dual in Illinois. We've got one for medical decision making and we've got one for financial decision making. So there are two totally separate powers of attorney. The medical decision power um, power of attorney means you are allowed to name another person to make your medical decisions for you when and if you cannot make them for yourself. The financial is similar in that you're allowed to name a, a trusted person to manage your money. That means you're giving someone authority over your bank accounts, authority over your investment accounts, authority to sign contracts for you, hire lawyers, deal with CPAs, and basically make all of your financial decisions. And you can name more than one person, as a matter of fact. You can name a succession, and you really should name a primary agent under these documents and then a couple successors in case your primary agent isn't able to act. And, you know, I see this all the time when listeners call in and say, you know, I thought I did everything right. Or I find family members will call in and say, mom listed sister ne'er-do-well as the trustee and she's taking money and I don't know what's going on with the trust. And I know my mom had a million dollars, but it's been two years and I don't have any of the benefits. And and, and, and it's hard to, to, to say, well, how, how do you know she's stealing? You don't know. Maybe it's not been resolved yet. How do you, let's, first of all, let's talk about how do you pick that? trusted person and how do you help clients do that how do you what do you ask them when it comes to choosing these people who are making these really really important decisions so i ask my clients in regards to financial decision making who in their network of people it does not necessarily have to be a blood relative it could be a friend a family member of choice or a close colleague who among your closest confidants is responsible with money i'm talking financial literacy who actually opens their mail reads their bank statements <laughs> right, and balances right. their checkbook right who is responsible with money And then who is loyal to you? Who do you trust to be most loyal to you? Because an agent under power of attorney is responsible for using that money only for you. That agent under financial power of attorney might be totally different from the person named under medical decision making because the person under medical decision making needs to be someone in your circle of confidants who has the, I call it the gravitas, the the ability to make death decisions for you? Who has the ability to be in the emergency room with you and has the strength, the emotional well-being and the mental focus, the ability to to make an end-of-life decision for you? You want it to be someone who's going to be able to make that decision without being traumatized and without struggling with it and someone who's going to be able to sleep at night. We don't want to burden someone with that decision-making power if it's really going to trouble them. 
Interesting. So, uh, and and many times you see you see people who will give decision making maybe to more than one family member, and then the family members fight. I mean, you know, they're trying to be fair. How do you how do you tell somebody? You know, do do what's right. Don't don't. This is not a time to be fair to all three of your children. If one, like you said, if one. You know, there's always one in the family who just doesn't, you know, doesn't rectify the checkbook and doesn't pay the bills. And, and that person shouldn't be around your money, right? I mean, it's just as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And this, this you're right, this isn't about um, trying to protect people's feelings. We, we can't shelter our kids when we're asking them to act as fiduciaries for us. We need to make a decision that is best for us. Uh, for some of my clients, it does make them feel better to have checks and balances in their powers of attorney. So that if they're naming, if they're forced to choose one child to act over financial decision making, that they give the power to a second child to oversee accountings, for example. So that there's some checks and balances in the family where one person is in charge of managing the money, but another person is responsible for overseeing it and making sure that everything is copacetic. Now, I was skipping around a little bit here, but do you ever have a situation where a couple comes to you and maybe the man is, is has dementia, let's say, or Alzheimer's, or some debilitating uh, disease and may need some serious medical, you know, uh, nursing home assisted facility care, but the other is, is in good shape? And how do you protect the non-ill party from the possibility that nursing home is just going to eat up all of this money. How do you you deal with that? We have to balance interests here. So when, when we have a married couple as a client, there are interests for the spouse who is ill that need to be protected, and there are interests for the spouse who is not ill, who needs to be protected. And often what we end up doing is balancing those interests so that we look at the marital assets and we devise a plan that maximizes the use of assets to obtain the highest quality care possible while creating an asset protection plan that that protects a certain amount of assets for the spouse who is expected to live longer and healthier. So this is it's a balancing act and every family is different. Sometimes the marital assets are, are divided differently between how much will be committed to the cost of care and how much will be protected. And ultimately, it comes down to how old the the married people are, how how healthy one is versus how ill the other is, and the type of care that's required, and the amount of assets involved. You know, we we're really out of time here, but I, I just want to maybe give me a thirty second answer to the question. Tell our listeners what how important is it to make this plan? I mean, we've talked about it, but I give me the the, the final word on this. It's the difference between aging well and aging dangerously. So entering entering retirement, entering age with a good, solid plan in place and a support team of people around you is going to mean living your retirement as if you are on an orchestrated cruise boat where everything <laughs> right is taken care of and it's all it's all in place. Not having a plan in place means we're going on an unguided trek through the wilderness, and we do not know what is going to happen. And we don't want that. Catherine Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Catherine is a lawyer with Dutton Casey and Mazzaros, and can you please just give out your phone number one more time? 312-899-0950. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope everyone has a great week, and we'll be back next week for more of The Karen Conti Show. 